0: Hello friends, welcome to Nexus, a smart buildings technology podcast for smart humans. I'm your host, James Dice. If we haven't met before, I write a weekly newsletter on this same topic. It's also called Nexus. Each week, I share what I've learned, my opinions, and what I'm excited about in the quickly evolving world of intelligent buildings. Readers have called Nexus the best way to stay up to date on the future of this industry without all the marketing fluff. You can check it out and subscribe at nexus.substack.com or click the link in the show notes. Since starting the Nexus newsletter, many of you have reached out to me wanting to talk shop, and we have. After a few weeks of those wonderful conversations, I realized I needed to record and share them with our growing community. So here we are. The Nexus podcast is born. This is our chance to explore and learn with the brightest in our industry together. Okay, episode 31 is a special end-of-year episode. Today we're not doing an interview, but a mashup of several interviews from this past year. Specifically, this episode is every answer to my favorite podcast question, all mashed together. I'm hoping this episode serves as an introduction to all the newcomers to our space that have the same question I've had, why the hell is the technology in buildings so far behind? And to kick us off, let's rewind all the way back to episode five of the podcast to my conversation with Troy Harvey, CEO of Passive Logic. I'm what you would call, as far as my personal technology, a late adopter. So up until Sunday, I had an iPhone six, <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and I just got a new I just got a new iPhone. I went ahead and got the newest one, iPhone eleven, and the process for setting it up was a crazy jump in technology for me. So. The process was basically turn on the new iPhone, set it next to the old iPhone, and then wait 10 minutes, and literally everything was set up. Every app was downloaded, every login was set up, all the settings were done, and what I've been thinking about since then was how crazy things have evolved on the personal side of our lives when it comes to technology, and then how far behind that buildings are. So I was wondering your perspective on how we got here to this point where building technology is 20 to 30 years behind the stuff we're carrying around in our phones.
1: I I think there's multiple factors, and it's a really interesting thing to bring up the iPhone experience because, you know, just to, to remind everybody, this is only 10 years old, and in the first four years of iPhone, we outsold, or Apple outsold, all 40 years of personal computing. So why is that? You know, Windows and Macs at the end of the 90s, they seemed, you know, pr- pretty easy to use. We're have installed cards in the back or we're not going to put things together. But there was this level of integration that happened with this starting at the iPhone that you could just buy it. Like you said, you buy it, you pull it out of a box and it's just ready to go. Like everything you need is right there. So that's now this personal experience that we've all consumed. And one thing that's interesting, and I think this is important in it, we'll talk about a part of technology culture that is being somewhat dispensed with that the building still belong to, which is the thing about the iPhone that's fascinating or an iPad is that both you as an expert user can use it expertly and you can see a two-year-old interact with an iPad at the same time. Right. And so this is a really interesting phenomenon. How do we make, everybody more expert at whatever level they are at and we we call that progressive disclosure right so the ipad or the iphone you know you can simply start swiping around and click on icons instantaneously without anybody giving you instructions at the same time as you get into a more sophisticated application you build up your expertise within it so in these commercial industrial worlds like building automation we're pre this revolution frankly we're pre the desktop revolution. as a person who, who was a, a, a successful entrepreneur in the building prop tech space said to me after he graduated with his computer science degree, he's like, goes into his first building and like goes in the basement, you know, in the back closet where all this gnarly stuff is sitting. He's like, oh my gosh, it's like basically a 1970s mainframe running this <laughs> building, right? And then it just blew yeah. his mind. And and so part of that is is several forces. There's a guild mentality that has tended to keep technology back. This happens in computer programming all the time, right? You know, talk to your deep Linux dude who just loves like his most, you know, the, the most awkward way to do things because it, it like produces a sense of specialness, right? Like if you know how to wield like four letter commands that's like nobody else even understands what you're talking about, there's like a sense of preservation. This is part of it, but as time rolls on, and people in that world have this iphone experience in their personal lives that starts to get less and less attractive to like maintain your guild as you have a personal life that feels more automated we're automation guys we should be automating our own world and yet we're still doing it this super low level way
0: okay i gotta pause troy for a second here this concept of a deep linux dude it's been on my mind for several months now we have so many of these same types of personas in our world where you think about like a deep backnet dude or a deep medicist dude we have these types of guilds uh everywhere in our industry and I, I think it's a really powerful concept for us to look around and say how are our guilds or our cultures within this industry holding us back And i think it's such a great point okay back to troy
1: but i think there's two other bigger forces that are really the cause here one is it's a effect of disruption a cycle of disruption that is true in all technology that the big four players in this marketplace they emerged in the 1800s right like their big innovation was mercury switch thermostats <laughs> and that 's like a lot of industries. look at Tesla today versus the car companies those are hundred year old companies with a hundred year old mindset with a hundred year old trajectory. And they just got disrupted by some guy in Silicon Valley. that Everybody thought was crazy for, and, you know, maybe he is a little crazy, but, but you know, <laughs> the, the, the end result, like, is they didn't see what was coming. And in the last few years, just literally two or three years, they've gotten to this point of existential crisis, right? That they, they no longer know if they don't put together these technologies or license it or buy it from somewhere else, that they will even be a business years. So I think that's a bigger arc that has left us to where we are today. And behind that is why don't companies self-disrupt? And I think in this market, what's very interesting, if you look at the big four, is most of them operates technical services, commissioning, installation. They're competing with their customers, right? And in a way, those parts of their business, which turn out to be actually more profitable than their product sales, are preserving and want to preserve the complexity of product. Otherwise, it would discount their operations, right? And while if they thought differently, they would say, well, in five years, I could make a much bigger market by democratizing this technology. And then there would be 10 times more buildings using it. In the meantime, you would end up in a bind where you would be making less money in order to make more money. And that's a no-go if you're the CEO of one of these companies. So they're not in a position to self-disrupt.
0: Hmm, yeah. fascinating so the main four players in our industry are the ones that for for a long time have created the technologies that our buildings are using but what you're saying is their business models are also heavily dependent on the service side of things and therefore yeah if you
1: look at revenue splits um the majority of those businesses actually make far more from their services side than they do from their hardware side so, we can go ahead and look in at in an analog, I, uh, the, the clear analog in the tech industry is Novell. Now, I don't know if people remember Novell, but in the 80s and early 90s, they were one of the biggest tech companies, just like IBM, Apple, Microsoft, Novell, and Sun. Those were the five bigs, and Novell invented what was like all of the networking infrastructure, and that was complicated in the eighties. And so what you do? You started a services division and education division and training and certification. Boy, it sounds a lot like if you go do BMS <laughs> today, right? Yeah. And, and, and you would have to go through all these hoops before you could be a certified Novell installer. And, and Novell became so dependent on the services side that they didn't see the future. And so, at the beginning of the 1990s, there were bulletin boards all across America, you know, along the highways, get yourself Novell certified right next to Microsoft certified. And by the end of the 1990s, they were out of business effectively, because laptops just had Wi-Fi and uh, even built in, right? And it just bypassed the whole thing.
0: Wow. So the guys that are basically building the BAS, they're dependent on it being a complicated thing that they then have to sell services to make it work. And therefore making it easy is directly contradictory to their current financial results. Right,
1: and, and just talk to anybody who's an integrator or a distributor at this time of year, they're having to pay their big fees to those um, big four to keep those certifications up. And it's an expensive process And you have to go through all these hoops, not before you can even install it, but before anybody will even give you a price for the product. Imagine that with your iPhone. It's like, well, go through three weeks of iPhone training, and then we'll tell you what it costs. And only (laughs) after that will we even like consider selling it to you, right? Go Go democratize that market, right?
0: I love that technology history lesson from Troy there. So let's go next to episode 29, where we had Trevor Sodorf with a very similar answer from a slightly different perspective.
2: You know, back when I started, the idea is that you're kind of, as a building owner, you're locked in with a manufacturer, a group of manufacturers, basically for the life of the building or for the life cycle of the the BMS. And mm-hmm. uh, you were kind of stuck with their shortcomings. The concept of interoperability really wasn't there. Yeah. and we're starting to see that progress pretty heavily in the, in the tech space, but because of, I think the business models of a lot of the legacy, you know, controls providers, mechanical providers and stuff like that, it's like, they want to lock you into their box. And yeah. I, I mean, it's not the direction that we want to go over the next
0: 10, 20 years. And um, yeah, it's a big ship to try and steer, right? Mm-hmm. And I got to say, when I first started asking this question, I thought vendor lock-in was really the main reason why our buildings are behind today and I think the rest of this episode is going to be answers that were surprising to me or answers that I knew but when people pointed them out it was like oh duh yeah that's a huge reason and this next one is definitely one of those. So let's stay within episode 29 and go to Keith Berkabin of Google. Um, no, I think the physical
2: buildings just last for a long time, right? And there's, you know, all of the incentives around how you finance buildings and how you build them and maintain them uh, discourages you from replacing stuff that's already there. And so as a result, you built a building 25 years ago, and the stuff you put in
3: there is still there. Mm-hmm.
0: So with that introduction from Keith to this theme, let's go over to Tyson Suter from episode 19, where he went a little bit deeper into it.
4: So I think about this way too often. When I first started, I I remember going into a building and seeing an automation system and thinking, this is very old software. And it wasn't that old. But then as you start going through buildings, you start seeing a pattern. So the facade looks great. You, you, You open a cabinet and what's not looking so great is the pneumatic system that's been in there for 40 years, but it works. So they're not going to upgrade it. So mm-hmm. a lot of it comes to when you install a system, you're not installing it for two years or three years. You're you're sometimes installing that system for 10 or 20 years. So if we come up with data analytics, which really in our industry haven't been around that long, really at scale, if you think about it, people have talked about it, but it's fault detection before now. So if you have to have, an acceptable amount of data in the right intervals, in the right structure, and you were cutting edge at the start of our industry, that's 3% of our buildings. So the 30 year replacement cycle, that's a very extreme case, but let's say on average seven to eight years in reality. I I saw buildings that still had pneumatic systems that stopped being installed 20 years prior to me starting my trade, still existing. And America has, a lot of these actually.
0: Yeah, the US has, we have a lot of pneumatic systems that are still out there, definitely. Yeah, and, and
4: working pretty well. Bit of oil, but it's okay. But this is the problem that we find is that it's it's never the first thing that is thought of when someone's looking at a building. Like a tenant's not going to walk in and be like, what a fantastic automation system. They're going to look in and say, oh, the, the foyer is very nice or the, the facilities, the, the gym, the lift, all of these things, they get upgraded and i think what we see is that people if you walk into a a new building and if you especially if you've been part of the design phase you can walk in there and think this is it's a beautiful building like Uh this is an a grade top of the range building but if you've been part of the design phase all the cuts that have been made to the subsystems and the systems behind that and until it becomes the forefront of the tenant experience it's it's always going to be cut first so one i would say it's a very long capital Life cycle and uh-huh. a very high capital expense. Two, it's not at the forefront of a tenant who is paying the bills. So until we can to influence both those phases, and then one might take longer than the other, it's gonna it's gonna take us a while to get to the technology required to actually bring us into competing with other industries.
0: Okay, now on to Logan Sawyer, CEO of Aquacore. This came from episode eighteen. Uh, And he continues on the same theme.
5: Uh, Let me start super broad, like super macro, and then I'll dig into CRE and kind of buildings in particular, or like the the real estate industry in particular. So super macro trends are, if you think about the industries that got disrupted by technology first, it was information-based industries, right? Information-based industries stand the the fastest path to disruption through technology because you can digitally encode whatever that work is in a faster, easier way. So unfortunately, uh, a lot of the other industries out there in this world that are now going through transformation, there's a common trend, right? It's industries that have some sort of physical aspect to them or industries that have some sort of field aspect to them. And so the macro things that are that I'm excited about that bring us to where we are today, but we're lacking in the past, our connectivity to the physical real estate is just really hard. And so that was really expensive in the old days. Getting that information to the right people required mobility, and that wasn't around in the old days. And then not to mention buildings are so unique, right? There weren't data crunching technologies available to create highly personalized experiences. And now you have like machine learning and AI and stuff like that to help tackle that. So I think there was a couple more macro reasons that are worth acknowledging first, before we dig into the, why does the real estate industry have its challenges? So that's, you know, step one. And then if you dig into real estate and real estate in particular, But if you look at it, at how it's categorized in Wall Street, like real estate is a subsector of finance. And so real estate is really like an investment vehicle to buy and sell assets that yield a return. So when you contribute to your 401k, Vanguard then takes that money and deploys it to investment managers. Those investment managers then take that money and have to do something with it. And one of the things that they do with it is they buy and sell buildings. And because a building is an appreciating asset that will get you your 8% return so that you can retire when you're, when you're ripe and old or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully still very active and still doing lots of cool stuff. And so now you need a nest egg to do that with, right? Anyways, so it's a weird thing because like how removed is that from how a building works? Think about that, right? Like that entire ecosystem is out there. And I can tell you that the experts that are really good at investing have no idea like what is happening to make a building actually work. And so there's so many layers of abstraction from one one role to the next, if that makes sense that it's just created this kind of disconnect between the buyers and sellers of buildings, the operators of buildings, the facility managers of buildings. And I think a lot of that is, has helped to disrupt the willingness to invest in technology because if you don't get it, obviously you're not gonna be interested in it.
0: All right, our next answer is from Mike Brooman, CEO of Vanti in the UK, and he keeps building on this same theme.
6: So I've obviously listened and watched a lot of the the podcast previously. And I think the thing that's really interesting for me is the number of different lenses there are on a building as a kind of ecosystem of stuff. So I think broadly it's behind because of the complacency in the industry. I think Mm. there's not really been that um, impetus or motivation to kind of get on board. I think automotive had it a lot from a kind of safety and you know infotainment perspective like getting mapping in and you know entertainment in cars and all that kind of stuff and then now as we move into kind of tesla and we're looking at software updated products and that kind of stuff but yeah i think if you look at buildings generally as a kind of end-to-end thing and over their entire life cycle because the people who are paying and in fact Andrew Rogers summed this up beautifully for me in terms of that that disconnect between the pain and the people that are paying.
0: Um,
6: And so I think it's been really interesting, certainly over the last few years, as things have gone from kind of what is a smart building to how do I get one. It feels like that kind of gap is almost being closed in that people are now starting to demand it on the kind of tenant side of things Mm. and investors are kind of starting to listen at at the other end of stuff. But I think also just the, the cycles that are involved in buildings, right? I mean, you're pulling a building out of the ground. You're talking about a design period of two to three years. And it's only really the very largest kind of portfolio developers that could think about iterating quickly. Like if you're a, a developer that's a, a kind of small or mid-sized one, you might be looking at doing a building every two to three years. And so unless you're someone that's really out there and, and looking for new ways of doing stuff, chances are you're you're in a world of do what we've always done, get what we've always got. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the whole pandemic situation, particularly for commercial buildings is really interesting because you now have a, a whole set of property owners and landlords that are really sitting there going, ah, oh, we used to just kind of collect rent checks every quarter. And now actually we need to start giving people a reason to come back into our buildings. And um, you know, people like Anthony Slumbers and Draw Poleg, they can talk to this far better than I can. But I think there's some real tectonic shifts happening at that level. And I think it is really dawning on some people that actually they are going to have to move into that kind of service space, that it isn't any more just about, okay, we've built a building on a plot of land. Look at the amazing view out the window. Here's how much it costs you every quarter. Like that just isn't going to fly anymore. And I think the other exciting thing and, and something, you know, as I mentioned, even from the super early days of working together with Raj is Those spaces are gonna become a lot more about the experience within them. It's not gonna be about desk farms anymore. It's gonna be about how do we come together and actually collaborate around stuff. I I mean, as someone who used to be an Oracle consultant and sat in that world and just sat looking at blue screens with yellow fields going, why is this system this bad? Like, (laughs) how do people work with this every day? I I just think there's so much potential to, to make it better And I think the ultimate reasons it's decades behind is property and construction are just really late to the party. And I think they're also hugely risk-averse industries. And um, actually, one thing that does spring to mind, I'll never forget the event I went to over in Berlin. It was previously a sustainability conference that rebranded around PropTech because PropTech was getting kind of cool. And I met this lady, I won't name the portfolio owner, but 40 billion euros of property under management. And we kind of, we got chatting like, you know, what do you do, all that kind of stuff. And she was a bit interested in kind of smart buildings and the thing, like what is one, not how to. And um, she was like, "Oh no, I can't really see this ever taking off. And I was like, well, what do you think would be required to make it happen? And her, her genuine answer was regulation. And at that point, I was ready to just get on a plane and and come home. I was like, if we have to wait for legislation to achieve this, then we're doomed. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the thing that really stuck with me from that conversation was her use of the words first followers. And the thing that she was really open about it. And she was just saying, as soon as we see someone else do something and it has business advantage and there's returns on it. She was like, we get all over it. Like we'll be on it all over it like a rash until that point we won't take the risk because actually we don't know if it will work and i think we've seen that play out i mean we've taken people to like our flagship smart building they've had a great time they've got it all they've spoken to clients you know got great vibes all that kind of stuff and then we've had a follow-up call kind of days later and they're like cool so can you take us to 10 more And you're just like, it's just not there yet. And and it's almost like you can't kind of show people enough in terms of the traditional like technology adoption curve. I think we're still in early adopter and innovator territory. We're not, Yeah. we're certainly not even early majority yet. It's got a way to go.
0: All right, James here again. So Mike mentioned Andrew Rogers answer and he was talking about the pain consumer distance thing. So here's Andrew explaining that concept.
7: So I like to think about it in terms of the pain consumer distance for consumer facing technology, the feedback in the market, like, you know, people talk about the market working in all kinds of mysterious ways. But if you don't have a feedback path, the market doesn't work. Markets don't work if there's no feedback. That's when you look at things like the financial crisis in 2008, the housing, that was the problem. The feedback loop was broken, so the market wasn't actually self-regulating. When we look at consumer technologies, if someone releases a phone that is terrible, people don't buy it. And that's your feedback loop. It lasts one technology cycle. And the people who are paying for the phone are the people using the phone. And I think that's the big difference the people paying for smart building technologies are not generally the people using the smart building technologies and that is throughout the stack so that's the people buying the buildings are not the people occupying the buildings the people choosing the vendor relationships are not the people that are deploying and programming. The people who are having to do the commissioning and the fact that commissioning needs to exist as something to bring together all these systems after they've already been deployed by their respective vendors, aren't the ones selecting or choosing the equipment that's being deployed. So the further you have that distance between who feels the pain of the choices you're making and who has to pay for the choices, I think the slower your progress is and the more sort of dystopian a reality you can end up in. I think the evidence when you posted this morning about having this, this conversation and got you know, pretty, maybe not the most feedback ever, but very fast feedback. Right. I think that's evidence that people know something is broken, but there isn't really change happening to affect that. So I love that answer. And I think it's clear that others do too, like Mike
0: mentioned. So here's Emmanuel Daniel of Microsoft, and he's sort of concurring and driving that same point home.
8: It's very simple. You change something when there is a need and the need arises because people complain about stuff not being good or people are just unsatisfied with the way things are being done. When you walk into a building you don't expect the lights not to work right you don't expect i'm coming from singapore you don't expect the air conditioning not to work right you go in you need to have you know managed air now if those two components fail what happens? people don't call and say hey get me an experience that allows me to set it to the right people say look i'm feeling too hot or i'm feeling too cold that's what you get hot and cold calls Of the lights are down one says hey the wavelength of light is not suitable for my optimum level of productivity in the environment. that We'll say, hey, the light's not working. Just turn the lights on. People start looking at building services as essential services, and we start providing them as core essential services. The lights work, the cooling works, the doors work. Now, if we have to evolve thinking to say, the space can actually do much more for you. And for that, the realization has to come from the end user, and I feel the users aren't aware of how much the space that they operate in can do for them and help drive their well-being, their productivity, and their engagement. Now, because that was not known to the industry as a whole, people spent a lot of time perfecting devices to keep the building running, to keep the building optimized they never saw the need as how interaction such as an access management system has to work with the navigation system has to work with the parking system the lighting system and a room booking system how all of them can work together to create a unified experience optimizing productivity of the individual or a group of individuals that you have so this was absent because people didn't ask for it and people may not have understood the capability or the power of the built environment and this is why i think the industry has evolved and The way our MEP systems are designed today are much better than the way they were designed in the past. Our buildings are more sustainable, more connected. But the effect of the evolution of these systems and the benefit you get by integrating them and allowing for the flow of data between these systems was not realized by the end user. What we are trying to do is saying, hey we can help you get more from that built environment. We can help you transform that space and allow for more space effectiveness. And that's something new, right? That's something we're trying to put in. And that's made possible by unifying the data from these systems and creating experiences that these systems can offer to the individual. And that's why I believe that people continue to perfect building operations and building systems, but the users did not have those expectations of how the building can help them be more productive. But today that view is shifting and we're saying that for people to be in space, they should be more engaged, they should be more productive, and the building should also take care of their developing. So that evolution has started to occur and that's why I see now the industry is transforming.
0: All right, James, again, I think that pain to consumer distance Point is very well driven home by those answers. Let's go back again to reiterate one of Mike's points about the risk aversion in the commercial real estate industry. So here's Kyle Took of ThoughtWire.
3: It's a great question, and you know it, it can get extremely frustrating. And I think it really comes down to three key areas. Uh, one is change management, right? That. Is always something that, if you go all the way up to the C level suite of executives, is at the top of their mind is what are the risks? What are the challenges I'm going to run into when I look at implementing a new technology that is going to change the way that we do business? Uh, you look at risk aversion, right? If I'm looking at a new technology versus something that I know works, whether it's the best thing available, uh, but if if I can operate and if I'm a building owner and my NOI is still looking good for my buildings, do I really necessarily need to look at this new technology?
0: And continuing on that same theme, we have the always energetic Joe Gasperdoni of Montgomery Technology talking about specifically risk aversion in the commercial real estate or office building industry.
9: First of all, thank you, because this has been like a splinter in my brain for, <laughs> for months. And then people are giving great answers, by the way, like they really do, they come up with things like, yeah, I actually hadn't thought about it that mm-hmm. way. But the thing I think that's missing is, like so many answers, the real answer is rooted in history. And mm. it's one that I lived, and so I know it's the answer. And the answer is, in 1990, in 1993, in 1994, People were using DOS software. That was technology. Technology in commercial real estate was like a non-existent thing. The BMS was not even considered technology. It was considered like a refrigerator or uh, uh, you know a toaster. It wasn't technology. They were things that were utility and that had like a serial connection to make it work. So it didn't really qualify. Hmm. And the people in commercial real estate, the founder, you know Sam Zell, founder of Equity. That guy is a salt of the earth guy. And to Mm. him, ledgers, paper ledgers didn't make mistakes. You could go there. You never lose it. Technology was like a roll of the dice risky proposition. So if something worked and it was on DOS, it stayed on DOS through the 80s. It went all the way into the mid 90s. They're very, very slow because technology to real estate is a cost. And Mm. the ROI behind it, was not provable. And so if you couldn't prove it, you didn't use it. So there were no CTOs in the you know mid 90s. Okay. That wasn't even a thing. And the first CTOs were like the weakest position in the entire organization. They just had no ability to move the ball or get anything done. So the true answer is that technology was basically DOS software, which everybody hated and nobody would come into the market where well, you can imagine if there's no value seen to technology, then people will not develop anything in a market where they they don't value it, they don't want it. So mm-hmm. that's that was the reality sort of, of where things were. Then you kind of had incremental progress in software. But guess what happened? The dot com bust. So you had people trying to develop property management software and cold fusion back then. And these things were just wild crash and burns and the people who tried to jump on just got crushed by that. And they, you know, many of them lost their jobs because it was, it was just not ready for the enterprise level use. And the budgets weren't there to really, you know, nobody was gonna pay $900,000 a year to subscribe or to pay for online property management software. So you have this fundamental difference of perspective where the people who ran the companies saw technology as a risk and a cost. And then you had the market saying, well, I'm not gonna go on that market and develop anything technological because I can't get enough uptake. Mm. And between that and the dot-com bust, we just now, I mean, like this is the beginning of finally recovering from that long cycle of where people can actually prove an ROI, can actually show some benefit, some gain. So we're just now coming out of that. And it's just, you know, it's really at the national stage. That's just where we are. As sad as that is, because we're so far behind.
0: All right, a little bit of a transition in theme here. So at this point, we've heard about the issues on the vendor side, the consumer side, and issues with just buildings themselves. Given these unique challenges, guests have made it clear that advancing this technology requires a unique skill set and change in the way we do business. With that, let's head back to Kyle Took. And then you also
3: look at personnel skill sets. So speaking specifically around digital twins, digital twin is causing organizations that are adopting this type of technology to look at hybrid skill sets that have experience both in the IT world. And looking at technology ecosystem, but also needing a strong engineering background as well. So you need this IT, OT hybrid skill set that really a lot of organizations don't have today. And you know we don't have a a hopper of those types of skill sets being brought into the industry. I'm, I'm hoping that changes here very soon, and we start providing more of a cross education on young professionals. You know, understanding both the engineering side and the IT side so that we have this new type of professional coming into the real estate organizations that can really drive, understand, and help an organization adopt, leverage, and move forward with digital twin
0: technology. All right. Next, we had Matt Vogel of Microsoft with a similar theme.
10: The first thing that comes to mind is that a lot of the the new wave of technology innovation, things like artificial intelligence cloud, you know, especially now digital twins. It's a very different technology focus than the traditional technology focus you see in buildings. So the traditional more hardware, you know, maintenance, you know, building management system type of thing. And so part of it is just being a completely new skill set for people. Um, but part of it, too, with, you know, I think is a general theme of digital transformation is making sure that you have all of the right stakeholders involved. And it's changing the way you implement technology. It's changing the way that you do business. I think a lot of this has to change, but it's affecting the way many people across the ecosystem are doing business today.
0: Yeah. And that it is a unique answer. I like that because I don't know if that is fully grasped. Right. And, and I'm teaching this course on smart buildings right now. And I think when people when the students I see the students kind of start to grasp this concept where it's like we're not just talking about technology here we're talking about a new way of doing business and that suddenly sort of like balloons the topic right but but you have to start asking these sorts of questions for you to have like an impact with the technology right right
10: yeah and, and a, a microcosm of that for example is when we started selling the Surface Hub, so the 70, 80, 90 inch you know, PCs. Microsoft initially went into it with a traditional IT focus. We thought it's just like selling any other PC where you just have to sell to the IT department and you're good to go. But because you're now attaching these things to walls, which means you need to run more power, you need to run other networking, you need to run all of your accessories, your audio video equipment to that machine, now you involve the facilities people. And so it's a whole different set of stakeholders that have their own agenda, their own priorities, their own requirements, too, in terms of network security and infrastructure. So all of that has to blend together and they're not always in sync. So it becomes that that issue where you have to start addressing how do you get these people to align on potentially conflicting goals or conflicting outcomes?
0: Okay, everyone. Finally, we got to the end here. This is the last one. Uh, this is actually my favorite answer. This is Deb Noller, CEO of Switch Automation, uh, bringing it home for us full circle.
11: Well, there's a, there's several pieces to that. Firstly, we've got the incumbents. So we've got a lot of really large incumbents, and that's everybody from the big hardware manufacturers, you know, Johnson Controls, Honeywell, Siemens, Schneider, et cetera. Then we've got the large service companies, CBRE, JLL, Cushman, and Wakefield, Mm -hmm. Then you've got all of the service companies that sit below that, and every single one of those companies is sitting on a business model that they have to protect, and uh, digital transformation is going to disrupt every single one of those Mm -hmm. business models. So that's one part of it, is we've got big players in the market who will actually actively and I'm not actually saying any of those are actively doing it but there are companies that really don't want to see too much of a transformation because they've got very large particularly service contracts that are reliant on large workforces and you know digital transformation will disrupt that so that's one part of it the other part of it which is probably the single biggest problem in why it hasn't happened faster is on the other side of the desk, we've got all of these people who know that sometime in the future, all of these buildings that they manage, own, operate, whatever, are going to be smart, connected, digital. But today, they're just dealing with this problem, well, I've got all these different manufacturers, I've got all these different service providers, and they actually haven't ever rolled out a really large technology project before. So if you look at real estate owners and operators, everything that they buy today is based on relationship or price. And buying technology has got nothing to do with relationship or price. It's all around how do these things fit together? What's the interoperability? What are the standards? How does the scale? And there's a really huge devoid skill set missing out of part of the market and it's gradually changing people like yourself coming in that, you know that we're seeing a lot of there's a generational change there's uh, people coming into the industry more IT people have come into the space within the customer base just because of the cyber risk you know so we've seen the IT people now coming in so I think it's gradually changing but nowhere near fast enough to help the problem which is every single large company needs at least one person inside their organization that understands how to buy technology and they've got to have the political clout to bring everyone along with them and they've got to have the willingness to be you know a risk taker and and to step off the ledge
0: yeah i actually hadn't thought about it from that perspective just in terms of the traditional buying patterns really of just how people are used to buying things today yeah when
11: people buy stuff for buildings they buy it for one building they buy an elevator they buy an energy mm -hmm. management metering system they buy a service contract for cleaning they haven't really had to think about buying enterprise tools in this way before and if anyone did buy enterprise tools you know we're moving to the cloud we're going to office 365 it was usually the IT department that did it Mm -hmm. the IT department doesn't understand all the nuances of BACnet and Modbus and all of these various things that they're dealing with and that's a learning curve for the IT
0: all right that's all folks so i want to say thank you to all of these wonderful guests on the podcast that have had such entertaining and truthful answers uh, about where we're at as an industry that i feel like people are going to get a lot out of Uh, also thank you to maddie for going back and pulling out all of these sections from all these different podcasts and putting them into one file for us all to listen to Uh, and third if you want to dive deeper into these concepts uh, why we're behind the history of this industry How we get out of this mess, uh, that's what I've developed the Nexus Foundations course for. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, head to courses.nexislabs.online and you'll be able to sign up for uh, the next cohort uh, to run through the course. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, please subscribe at nexus.substack.com. You can find show notes for this conversation there as well. As always, please reach out on LinkedIn with any thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.